You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners. Thank you so much for joining us on the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Nat, and today I am so excited to be talking to Becky Chambers about the Monk and Robot books, the second installment of which, A Prayer for the Crown Shy, will be out this month. By the time this episode airs, you will be able to grab a copy at Skylight Books. And without further ado, I will introduce her and then we will get started. Becky Chambers is a science fiction author based in Northern California. She is best known for her Hugo Award-winning Wayfarers series. Her books have also been nominated for the Arthur C. Clarke Award, the Locus Award, and the Women's Prize for Fiction, among others. Chambers has a background in performing arts and grew up in a family heavily involved in space science. She spends her free time playing video and tabletop games, keeping bees, and looking through her telescope. Having hopped around the world a bit, she's now back in her home state where she lives with her wife, and she hopes to see Earth from orbit one day. Thanks so much for joining us, Becky. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Do you want to start us off by uh, reading a little something, welcoming us to Panga? <laughs> I, will, I, I would love to welcome you to Panga. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit here from A Prayer for the Crown Shy, which is, as you mentioned, it's the second book in the series. So a, a brief bit of context as, as we hop in here. So the books follow um, sibling Dex, who is a traveling monk. Uh, the first book um, highlights their relationship with Mosscap who is a robot uh, that was built out in the wilderness. I am glossing over a ton of exposition here, but um, <laughs> the humans of Panga, the little moon that we're hanging out on now, uh, have not seen or spoken to robots in several hundred years. It's been a long time since anybody had any contact with them. Uh, so the first book is about Dex and Mosscap's relationship and how they figure each other out and begin to grow together. The second book is about them leaving the wilderness for the villages of Panga and interacting with the different communities and people there. Moscap is very eager to meet people because it hasn't met anyone besides Dex before. Um, so we will we will start just a little bit of a ways into the book here uh, where Dex and Moscap are um, all, almost at their first village. The trees the village was tucked within were deceptively young. They towered majestically over the road, taller than any building outside the city, their layered branches creating a dappled lace of sunlight. But the age of a Keskin pine was expressed not in height, but width. The early years of saplings were spent exhausting every calorie sucked from both light and dirt on building themselves upward, trying to escape the shade of the lower forest for the brightness above. It was only after they'd spent years converting unfiltered sun into life-giving sugar that they began to expand horizontally, transforming into behemoths as the centuries drummed on. By their species standards, the trees in the place that Dessa and Mosscap had entered were slim teenagers, less than 200 years old. There was only one reminder of the giants that had once stood in this forest and would again one day. Dex stopped the wagon and hopped off their bike as they approached the village's namesake. An enormous stump, wide as a modest house, its spiring might cut clean away in the early days of the factory age, a time in which not much thought was given to spending 20 minutes on killing something that had taken a thousand years to grow. There was a shrine to Bosch placed before the stump, a stone pedestal with a carved spear set on top. 
Small ribbons had been tied to it by countless passers-by, their colors faded and fraying in the open air. Dex had ribbon in the wagon, but did not fetch it. They merely capped their hand atop the mossy stone and bowed their head in greeting and reverence. Mosscap walked up behind them, observing. May I ask why you do this, given that Bosch will not notice, it asked. Oh, the shrine's not for Bosch, sibling Dex said. It's for us. People, I mean. Bosch exists and does their work regardless of whether we pay attention. But if we do pay attention, we can connect to them. And when we do, we feel, well, you know, whole. Mosscap nodded. I feel that way with anything I observe in the wilds. And I suppose that's why I don't understand the need for this. No offense, I hope. None taken, Dex said. But you know the feeling I mean? Very much so. I feel I connect simply by watching things move through the cycle. I don't need an object to facilitate that feeling. Well, neither do we if we remember to stop and look, Dex said. Well, that's the point of a shrine or an idol or a festival. I mean, the gods don't care. Those things remind us to stop getting lost in everyday bullshit. We have to take a sec to tap into the bigger picture. That's easier said than done for most folks. You'll see. They paused for a moment, reflecting. You know, it's funny the way you said that. The way I said what? Mosscap asked. That you don't need an object to facilitate that feeling. Dex gave a single chuckle. You are an object facilitating that feeling. The feeling's coming from you, after all. Mosscap's lenses shifted, and Dex could hear a small whir inside its head. I'd never thought of it that way, Mosscap said. It put its hands flat against its torso, falling silent and serious. Dex watched the robot contemplate itself before the remains of the stolen tree, and likewise felt a thought take root. You know, you might be a powerful thing for people to see. How so? Well, it's one thing to be told about the world as it was, Dex said. It's another to see a piece of it. We have ruins and things like this. They nodded at the stump. But you're the farthest thing from a stone shrine. It's not like I ever doubted the awakening happened, but meeting you made it real no museum ever could. I think you'll bring a lot of perspective to the people we meet, even if all they do is see you walk by. Mosscap took that in. I hadn't thought about me providing them with perspective, it said. Well, that's what I'm seeking. Sure, but exchange is what you get out of any interaction, even the smallest ones. Everything has a give and take. Still, what you're saying is quite a responsibility. Mosscap folded its fingers together before its chest, and its eyes glowed intensely even within the brightness of the day. What if I make a mess of this? Don't think of it that way, Dex said. You don't have to do anything. You just have to be you. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make you nervous. Yes, well, you did, sibling Dex. The robot wrung its hands together and the whir in its head grew louder. I've never met any humans but you, and I know that doing so is rather the whole point of me being here, but now the enormity of it is hitting me, and, and, oh, I must seem so foolish. Dex shrugged. Honestly, I'm just surprised it took you until we were ten minutes out to, ten minutes, Mosscap cried, clutching its face. Oh, no. Oh, no. 
Hey, Dex laid a hand on the anxious machine's forearm. The naked metal components were uniformly warm to the touch. It's going to be fine. You're going to be fine. You'll do great. Moscat looked at them, its lenses expanded wide. Do you think they'll be afraid of me? Or, or dislike me, perhaps? It glanced down at its body. Will they not like what I remind them of? Maybe, Dex said with gentle honesty, but I highly doubt many of them will feel that way. And anyway, you don't have to worry about that. Why not? Dex smiled reassuringly. Because I'll be with you the whole way. I could have, I could have just listened to you read the whole book. <laughs> they're, they're so wonderful. And I, I'm so glad that our, our listeners will get to hear a little bit of that. Um, especially if they haven't been introduced to Pangea yet, if they haven't read A Song for the Wild Built, which is the first book, uh, I think that that will definitely intrigue them a little bit. And I'd love to start by talking about that, how the, what I noticed in the world of Panga and these stories um, is that there is such a generosity just sort of flowing throughout every, you mentioned exchanges, sibling Dex is talking about exchanges between them and Moscap and like there's exchanges, there's um, just the way that people interact with each other, the way that people interact with nature and the world um, and the way that people allow space for things that they don't know or understand, um, which as I was kind of thinking about it after I read the books, um, that I'm, it's not that I don't enjoy sci-fi, but I haven't read a lot of it. And so the ideas that I was having, I was like, oh, I'm pretty sure that these are a lot of ideas that are just sort of ingrained in the genre itself. Um, but I'd love to, I'd love to hear um, about if you, I'm sure you might agree that there's generous, like a ton of generosity in this story and how you incorporated that into the way these characters see and interact with each other and on this little moon, um, the way the, the nature interacts with each other too. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Panga is um, the, 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 the human territories of Panga, which of course are only half of the moon because they've left the other half for, for the rest of the species that live there. Um, but, you know, theirs is a, is a post-scarcity society in which um, there was a, a massive technological revolution that happened a few centuries ago because, um, you know, they were rapidly running into ecological collapse and they had to change things and changing the way that you, you know, that you use technology, that you use resources that also requires um, a very deep change in uh, mindset, attitude and approach in your beliefs as well. And I think that the only, well, I mean, okay, I'm not going to be too prescriptive, <laughs> but I, that's incredibly biased here. But I think that in order to achieve that, you would have to embody a good degree of humility and a good, and, and the understanding that you don't know everything and that this world is not for you specifically, you are a part of it. And there is, as Dex said, always a give and take. You, you cannot move through the world without influencing it, without changing it, without interacting with it. 
And so you have to be really mindful about how you do so, whether that be what you eat or what you say to people or, you know, what kind of home you live in, all of it has an impact on something, whether you see it or not. And so I wanted to show that that is um, a core element of all the different societies in Panga, and it's how they're able to achieve um, this harmonious balance that they have found with nature. It's not perfect. Um, and I also wanted to be clear that this is not a monoculture, right? I really dislike um, what you see in a lot of utopian fiction, this idea that there's this one size fits all approach to, you know, how we're going to fix the world's problems, how a society should be run. That's not how anything works. We're all different. Mm -hmm. There are lots of different beliefs. You have to have different societies based around um, not just the cultures and the traditions that are there, but the environments, the microclimates that they live within. So despite how different the people of Panga can be, the one thing I, I thought it was necessary for them to have in common is that, that deep, deep belief that you don't know everything. You have to make space, not just in a physical way for the things you share an environment with, but also in a, in a, you know, the less tangible way of you will be sharing this place with people who don't live like you, who don't share the same, um, sort of extemporaneous beliefs that you do. Um, but you still are in this world with them and you have to find a way to make that work. And, um, so, everything and all the little interactions in this book. Um, I've tried to reflect that as much as I can. Well, I think not even in just the interactions, but in, uh, I mean, Moss Cap's great quest, um, which I don't think is a spoiler. Um, no. People may, people may want to know because I, I, I'll say there was a little part of me that hoped that Moss Cap would get an answer. But um, for our listeners, moss caps uh, come out to uh, sort of on a quest. And when it meets sibling decks, they're hoping to find out what humans need. Um, and I think there's really no better way to, to kind of smash the idea of a utopian idea than by asking what human, asking every single person you meet what humans need. Yeah, I, I, I liked playing with that because, because when I set out to write these books before I wrote um, A Psalm for the Wild Built, which is the, the first, um, you know, I, I wrestled with it because, you know, the, the whole problem with utopian fiction, right, is, well, what's the story if everything works? Like, what are you actually writing about if everything works? And I think um, that's a legit criticism, but I think it also... Um, presupposes that the only stories worth telling are the big ones, that the only conflicts mm -hmm. worth exploring are, you know, the, the big flashy, um, you know, sort of world-changing ones when really those, those conflicts can be very quiet and very personal. The conflict in, um, in Psalm is Dex internally um, trying to figure out themselves and their place in this world and, and this feeling of discontent that they have that they can't put a name to, right? So even though Dex is well taken care of, everybody in the world is well taken care of, and the fact that everyone has 
you know, water, food, housing, all the all the things that should be basic human rights, um, you know, that they are given the space to explore their interests and to get an education, you know, all of these needs are taken care of, but people will still need things, right? You still will, um, you know, have things you want to pursue in life, make, you will still make mistakes, you will still have regrets, you will still have questions. And um, so that was, um, I don't know, really the, the, the foundation on which I built these, which, okay, if we've taken care of the big stuff, then what's left? And so it just seems sort of a natural fit to me that I did actually have a character in the books that is directly asking <laughs> that question. And, um, having trouble finding an answer because it's not yeah. one that I can answer on my own. So, yeah. um, you know, Moscap does not get the same answer everywhere and there is no easy answer to it. And Dex tells them from the jump in the first book that you're never going to be able to answer you're this, but Moscap is, no, <laughs> is determined to, to try anyway. And then I'd love to talk again about something that I think is probably, um, very common in speculative fiction um, that about, I'm curious about the, like the power dynamics when you uh, introduce sort of object characters um, as opposed to human characters, which Dex and Moscap have a large conversation about um, when sibling Dex asks Moscap what their gender is. And it says that it doesn't have a gender because it's an object and Dex is kind of just confused and this is one of the um the situations in which I loved the space that was allowed for just so much listening um and understanding that you're you're meeting someone or something where they are at Dex has never seen a robot has never talked to a robot doesn't know anything but stories about the robots and so rather than pulling from those stories allowing Moscap to let Dex know what their deal is, what its deal is. Um, that was such a, a beautiful thing. And then um, at a certain point in this book, um, Moss Cap is injured, you could say. And um, I really loved that Dex made sure not only with like the influence they had, but with the influence other people had to help heal Moss Cap. Moscap got the final say, um, regardless of the object-human dichotomy. Um, there was no there was no power dynamic essentially, and it didn't really seem like the the people of Panga were still um, uh, cautious um, about the robot because they had never seen one before, but or in this small town that they were passing through. But um, ultimately, Moscap got to make the decision about how it was taken care of or fixed um, and no one else got to make that decision for them, which I thought was a really beautiful part of the book and the story. Thank you. Yeah, I um, I have a bee in my bonnet perpetually about um, uh, the a very common theme in stories about robots or artificial intelligence, androids, these sorts of things, which are, let's be fair, stories I have voraciously consumed in my life. I love robot stories, yeah. as you you may have gathered. Um, but often um, 
these stories have at least an element, if not the core point of the story is that, that the machine wants to be human, that the, the best thing mm-hmm. that the, the machine could achieve is becoming human, that the, the ultimate quest is to become like us. And I find this um, uh, short-sighted and I think that it it's um, really reflective of what I see as, as a big flaw in our society in that we, we, you know, and this has been the case for centuries, but that we see the world as something designed for us, that we see ourselves as the pinnacle of evolution. We are the reason everything else exists. You know, everything is here for us to use. And I do not ascribe to that belief. And um, I, I think that, you know, that that whole conversation you reference where um Moscap is explaining to Dex that it prefers the pronoun it because pronouns are something that people use and it's not a person it's a it's an object and it's offended by the idea of being <laughs> referred to as something else because it takes great pride in what it is um and I I think um that thing that Dex is wrestling with in that scene is this idea that in order for us to value another being, not a living being in this case, but a thinking being, um, in order for us to value them, we have to see them as like us. And what Moss Cap is saying is, I am not like you. I am not mm-hmm. the same as you, but I am asking you to value me in the way that you would another person, but not to think of us as the same. And um, and that's, that's really the crux of it there. And I don't think this is an entirely alien idea for Dex because again, they're coming from a culture in which non-human life is respected, in which the needs of other species are respected, in which there does not have to be utility in wilderness or in other species. They are allowed to just live because they're, they have an equal right to life. As, as we do. Um, the challenge for Dex is, is to expand that thinking to something that is a machine. And it doesn't take them too long. Like they get it, but it does take, they have to think about it. Yeah. They have to stop and they have to check their own biases because they are trying to be respectful. They think they're being respectful by referring to Moss Cap as a person, um, not realizing that assigning something an identity that it does not hold as as its own truth um is actually denying that being agency is actually denying that being the right to to tell you who it is that they are um so that that was an idea um i i really enjoyed playing with in the first book and, and continuing to play with in the second and then as we as we go with dex and Moscap on their their journey um where you kind of left us when you were reading, um, where Dex says, well, why don't we, we go meet some people and see what happens? Um, I know that this would obviously not be the intention, but it could have easily turned into that. And I'm sure that there are plenty of stories where this is the case. I'd love to hear about how that didn't turn into sort of like a, a traveling circus of sorts. There's so much compassion that Dex has for Moscap and making sure that it is okay and it is not um, being taken advantage of or hurt and has said, you know, like where you left us, I'll be with you the whole way. You don't have to be afraid. Um, You don't have to worry. But, um, and also 
when they get to one of those first towns, Moscap is asking people, what, what do you need? What do humans need? And someone says something like, I need my rain gutters cleaned. <laughs> and, yeah. and so Moscap goes to do this. And Dex gets very worried and is like, I don't want, I don't want it to just be doing people's chores. That's not what, that's, yeah. that is something that they need, but that's not the intent of the question that Moscap is asking. So I'd love to hear, cause I'm sure it's, it would, it was difficult to make sure that that didn't become a sort of traveling circus. Look at this robot who is willing to help and will do your chores for you. <laughs> That was something I was I was incredibly conscious about um, in thinking about how other people were going to react to Moscap and how Moscap would react to them because Moscap is coming into this with um, not a not an immature like Moscap is definitely a a you know a mature thinking creature you know or being rather you know there's nothing it's not a child right like yeah. but it also is innocent in a lot of ways in that it doesn't understand human culture it doesn't understand human society and so everything it does you know it is in this very sort of fresh new rose-colored glasses sort of way of like i don't know what we're doing but this is great dex is the one who sees that this could quickly become a problem if people think yeah. that oh there's this cool machine that'll you know fix your bike for you dex is it puts a stop to that you know, right away. But I, I, I wanted again to make it clear um, on the subject of, of power dynamics that Dex wasn't the one who approached the villagers and was like, you need to knock this off because mm -hmm. Dex is not Mosscap's keeper. Dex is not there to decide what Mosscap does. What Dex does in that scene is goes to Mosscap and Mosscap. pulls it aside and asks and mm -hmm. says, are you okay with this? Is this what you actually want to be doing? Because if you don't, you know, I'll get you out of here. Um, I, I, I wanted to to make it, um, and that's why that's you know one of the first scenes in the book is because Dex is always, always, always acting um, to make sure that not just that Moscap is comfortable and that Moscap is safe, but that Moscap is making decisions for itself. Um, Dex is incredibly uncomfortable with the idea of of bossing Mosscap around or of telling Mosscap how it should uh, interact with the world. Um, I thought that was a really key component of their friendship that Mos that Dex is a sort of protector and a guide, but not in a paternalistic sort of mm -hmm. way. And then I'd love to hear about the, the, in this last question I asked sort of falls into that, which you said there's a fine balance, but there are so many just like beautiful ideas in this book um, that are like, like you said, the world should, I want the world to be like Panga <laughs> because it's, it's not even utopian. It's just, there's so much, and it's not utopian, as you've said, mm -hmm. and like there, there are still problems in it but there's so much room for understanding and talking about those problems. And there are so many different things, like we could call them like hot topics or things like that, that exist within this book or questions that are asked, but they are not um, prescriptive, like you said, in any way about like, this is what a good world would be like and how it would function. Um, but they're brought up in ways that 
really just almost give you one little sentence that earworms enough to remind you to think about something in a different way or look at something differently. Um, and you do so much of that within a very short little book too. Um, and so I'm sure that that was extremely difficult, <laughs> but it's, but it's very much like a mark of an, an incredible writer, in my opinion, to be able to, to fit all of those things in and just sort of ask you questions, um, not tell you how to do things or where to go from here. Um, but to go like my intention after finishing these books was to go give them to someone else so we could talk about them. Like go go read this short sweet little book and it will make you feel happy while you're reading it you might not be happy afterwards because you have to go back into our world <laughs> but there is so much um they they offer so much space for conversation and that's part of that generosity as well so i'd love to hear just about how how you balance all of that um, as, as briefly as I can. Yeah, it's tricky. It is tricky <laughs> to um, write what, what I think of as very, very simple, very intimate stories, but make sure that, um, you know, there, there's plenty of nutrition in it as well. I never want to get preachy with my work with this or with anything else. Like I never mm -hmm. want to um, write something that's like, and here's the moral of the story, you know, here's, here's how I think the world should work. I mean, obviously, some ideas of what I think a nice world to live in are present here. But um, ultimately, I don't want to offer easy answers. I want you to have something to, to chew on. Um, and that's true in everything I've written. But with this series in particular, um, one of the ideas that went into it um, but before I even started writing it was I was looking at the way me and my friends had started consuming media in the late 2010s and early 2020s. I do not need to explain uh, that this has been a very <laughs> stressful time uh, to be a person. Um, and we all started doing this thing where, you know, we're living in this incredible golden age of media, um, you know, where there's all these new TV shows and, um, and books and video games and just like storytelling is, has never been better, I think. Um, but we were all watching kids shows like cartoons or things we watched when we were kids, you know, like sitcoms we grew up with, things that we've seen 20,000 times. It was because these things are comforting. There's no anxiety in it because you know exactly what it is you're going to get. And so all of us would say like, oh yeah, I can't watch, wait, wait to watch that new show. I've read such good things. And then we would go right back to watch rewatching whatever it was that, you know, was our comfort binge. Um, or we would ask each other things like, does it end well? You know, I've heard really good things about this mm -hmm. show, but does it end well? Is it too, you know, is there anything really rough in it? I'm not sure I'm in the headspace for that. And the thing is, I found myself uh, often kind of struggling when I would sit down at the end of the day to figure out, okay, what is it I'm going to watch? What is it I'm going to read? Because I wanted something new. I did want something new. And mm -hmm. I wanted something that spoke to me as an adult, I didn't want something that was still speaking to my childhood or teenage self. I wanted something that's talking to me here now in my late thirties, you know, that provides me with some new fertilizer <laughs> as it were, but I was so tired and everyone was so tired that it was just, it was just easier to reach for the comfortable thing. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, can I write something 
that hits that note that that gives you that same feeling as watching a really good cartoon, watching something that you grew up with, that same comfortable, nothing is going to hurt you here feeling, but it's going to talk to you like an adult. It's going to provide you with um, a story that is tricky and it's got some, some complicated bits in it, but it's also not going to tax you. And if you want to walk away and have things to, to, to mull over and to talk about it with a friend, it's there for you. But primarily what I want it to feel like is a break. So even if you don't want to have any conversations with it at all, I just want it to be a nice afternoon for you. And so that was, that was the goal with these. And, um, and, and I'm happy to say here that it, that it, yes. that it met that with you <laughs> because that was, that was very much the intent. No, it, it absolutely did. And like I said, there's so, there's so much to, um, it definitely feels like a warm cup of tea going down, um, which I know was probably the intention too. Um, and there is so much fun stuff and beautiful, so many beautiful ideas in these books. I'm sure that there were so many more that just couldn't fit um, or that will be coming up in future Monk and Robot books, hopefully, but I'd love to hear about some of the things that you had ideas for on Panga originally that just kind of either didn't fit into the world or um, once you kind of got started, you realized maybe you had to wait, they wouldn't like, and you don't have to, and you don't have to spoil anything, but that um, you, yeah, sort of just realized like, I, I think this would be a great place to go, but these characters aren't ready for that yet. That is the challenge with writing a novella as opposed to a novel is that with novellas you do by definition have to be short and sweet. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, that was, that was my contract for these was, was novellas, not novels. So, you know, I, I, yeah. I really did have to think um, efficiently is such a cold word, but that, but really yeah. I had to, I had to streamline it. Um, the first thing that came to mind is a spoiler. It's a, it's a, it's a location in the first book that they originally spent a lot more time in. Um, mm -hmm. and there just wasn't room for, and whenever I encounter something like that, especially when writing a novella where I realize it's getting a little long, um, or maybe the scene isn't working, I, I have to take a giant step back and look at the forest and not the trees and really look at what's serving the story here. And that's not to say that I think everything should be like, um, you know, always like driving, driving, driving. Like I do not write books with, um, you know, like a, like a big crunchy tense plot. That's not what you'll find in my work. Um, <laughs> and no disrespect to people who do write that. I do love that stuff myself, but that's not what I write. Um, and so I don't mind hanging out in one spot for a long time, just for the sake of something being, um, beautiful or just for, you know, um, the sake of something being, hey, here's a neat idea. Where, where does this take the book? I don't know, but here. Um, so, you know, I'm not afraid of those sorts of things, but ultimately it does all have to play a role in the, in the big picture. And um, so, yeah, there were things like uh, a location late in the book that, um, that Dex and Mothcap go to that they were originally at for quite a long time. Um, I really had to think about what sorts of places I wanted to visit in the second book, since the second book is all about their travels through the different villages. Mm -hmm. And so um, that went through a lot of different iterations. Um, I, I probably wrote a, a whole second book worth of stuff. Um, 
you know, as opposed to what actually made it up or what actually made it onto the page. Um, and that that took a lot of thinking about, what, you know, which which of these places, which of the stories that could happen in these places um, are the most important, the most interesting um, and, and the most different as well. I wanted to make sure it wasn't too samey all the way through, you know, that everywhere we go, it, it's, it's not just in a different environment, but we, we are exploring something a little different with these two. And so, um, really separating the wheat from the chaff, um, with the, the, the possibilities there, cause there's so many places you could go on a road trip. Yeah. Um, and so, so whittling it down to, to just a few was hard. Um, but, um, but when I do that with anything I write, um, you know, I never throw anything away, even if I don't use it for this project, um, you know, I might be able to recycle it in a different form for something else five years from now. So who knows? Um, so all, all of the bits that, that get le got left on the cutting room floor still are still there. They still live on my hard drive. Um, <laughs> and, and we'll see, we'll see where they end up in the future. And then for creating worlds like this and uh, coming up with these new ideas and things like that, do you do any kind of research or is it all brain daydreams and, and night dreams and staring at the forest? Um, or do you, I'm sure it comes from just consuming stories about other worlds as well. Um, but I'd love to hear if there's anything that particularly inspired these uh these novels in this world or if um and not even a like I because we talked a little bit about this like I like this idea of the utopia but I can not I can do it better but there's like if I were to tweak it it would look a little more like this um type of thing yeah um the level of research I do depends heavily on the project at hand um Monk and Robot is definitely more science fantasy than science fiction in that, you know, we're on a secondary world, there are gods, like there, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's impossible. If I'm writing out and out science fiction, um, for example, um, I wrote a novella, To Be Taught of Fortunate, which is very much like science science fiction. That one I did a lot of research for. Mm -hmm. um, my Wayfarer series, I also did a lot of research for, even though that is slightly more in the fantastical direction, but um, it's still something that is based very much in the real universe as it exists, the laws of physics as they exist. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted everything in those books to feel possible, even if it's not probable. Um, with Monk and Robot, I didn't do as much research as I have done with my other work because a lot of it was based in things that I have either already learned about or places I have been. I didn't want it to be um, you know, sort of a, a wiring diagram blueprint sort of sci-fi book, right? Like I didn't want to sit around and explain to you, here's how this solar generator works. And here's how the, the gray water system works. Again, it's a novella. I don't have time, but also that wasn't what I was interested in exploring. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, a lot of it comes from interests I have already had for much of my adult life. Um, things like, uh, sustainable technology, green technology, biotech, um, and, uh, you know, just fixing everything <laughs> to put it extremely simply. Um, and a lot of it too is, is based on, um, places I have gone and felt quiet, you know, natural places, um, ruins, small towns, places like that. Um, I'm, I'm lucky in that, um, I'm 
pretty well traveled, which is as a privilege. Um, and I feel that it's important to um, communicate those experiences in the places I've been to to other folks, you know, because if it just benefits me, what's the point? So a lot of it was was me sort of painting these um, abstract funhouse mirror versions of of places I've been, um, places that made me feel content, made me think about things. Um, you know, I, I, I wanted to, uh, honor those places. Sounds a little cheesy, but yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to, to, to put down, um, on the, on paper, uh, the places I've been, the natural things I've seen that have really meant a lot to me. And then I love to, uh, ask everyone this as a, as a sort of two-part final question, First, uh, what is a either medium or um, art form of any kind, not just writing, that you would love to try or experiment with, but you either you haven't yet, either because you haven't had the time or there's a little bit of fear that it it wouldn't work well <laughs> or it wouldn't translate well. Um, and then also, what work have you been consuming lately that has really filled you up with joy or made your world a little brighter yeah um in terms of something i'd love to do so i'm a, I'm a huge uh video game fan and sometimes i'm like oh, it'd be so much fun to work on writing a game or writing I, okay this one is bucket list i would love to write um like a lore book for a tabletop rpg or something mm -hmm. like that my fear with doing this though is that games are my hobby and i know all too well what happens when you make an activity you love your job <laughs> in that it becomes your job, which is not to say that I don't love writing. I really do. But there is something special for, about games for me in that I don't have to sit there and think about how the sausage gets made. I don't have to think about mm -hmm. any of the drama that goes along with it. I can just play a fun game and that's really nice. Yeah. Um, but I do think I do think it could be a lot of fun to work on something like that. Um, things that I have consumed lately that I have enjoyed. Um, the most recent book I read was Spear by Nicola Griffith, which was fantastic. It was so good. Um, I just wanted to devour it. it. I wish, I wish there were, I wish it was like three times as long, not because it was lacking <laughs> anything, but because it was just so good. Um, games wise, uh, I recently finished playing Tunic, which is a absolutely charming um and and just wonderfully rewarding um rpg that's got a lot of puzzle elements but also um just a beautiful world to explore and it just it it it, it felt like a hug that game it was it was an incredibly challenging frustrating hug <laughs> but it was <laughs> it was great uh and i also my wife and i just finished watching our flag means death which is incredibly enjoyable and just such a it's just, just a sweet silly show and uh yeah those are those are things that um have definitely given me a little more battery as of late and then for all of our listeners who after they hear this when uh prayer for the crown chai is out will immediately be done reading both of the monk and robot books do they have something to look forward to on panga in the future um, so I am leaving the door open for Dex and Mosscap. Um, I don't have any immediate concrete plans for them. Right now I'm working on a novel in a new setting. So I am working on something different at the moment. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see we'll see where Dex and Mosscap end up in the future. 
Well, we are so excited to see where they end up and what new worlds Becky Chambers has in store for us all. Uh, thank you again so much for joining me and taking the time to chat with me today and for all of our listeners. If you have not gotten your copy of the Monk and Robot books, you can grab one from Skylight Books or on our website where you can shop 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.